Welcome to the Work Revolution podcast, where we believe, in fact, we know, there's a better way to work and live. And we are here to challenge the status quo of obsolete workplace practices and ideas about leadership. I'm Lisa. And I'm Deborah. Along with you, our listeners, we're evolving our thinking about what it means to belong, innovate, and create change at work. Join us as we dispel the myths of meritocracy, hierarchy, and other bullshit practices that get in the way of all of us harnessing our full potential to make a better world. Welcome back to our listeners. It's Deborah here with you today. And I'm doing one of our favorite types of episodes where we get to talk to a woman who's in a male-dominated industry about a couple different things about her experience in that industry, some stories perhaps from early days in her career. And we're also going to get some expert advice on women and finance in particular. So my guest today is Crystal Bueller, who is a licensed insolvency trustee and founder and president of an organization called Debt Free North, who are based in Manitoba, Canada. Welcome, Crystal. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So you've educated me a tiny bit already. <laughs> this is an area where anybody who knows me well will say I have some deficiencies. So just start off by telling us a little bit about, I mean, I'm imagining that someone who does is in your line of work starts off probably with an accounting designation and has sort of a specialization from there. So start off by just telling us a little bit about what this special designation is and what it is that you do. For sure. So yeah, your assumptions, right? A lot of licensed insolvency trustees, LITs, we call ourselves, do have an accounting designation or at the very least, say a commerce degree or, or something like that. That's a vast majority of trustees. The LIT, so the licensed insolvency trustee license is given up by the federal government. So it's specific to Canada and they are only allowed to license people who've completed a specific course of study. And that course of study is offered by our national association. So it's not like you could go to your local university, take the right courses, and then get the license. That would be your first of many steps. I am a CPA, so I do have the Charter Professional Accountant designation. And after I finished that, then I did the specialized insolvency course. Um, all in, it took me about 11 years of study to complete the designation. So it's not something that people do lightly, and it takes a lot more than m- most people think to kind of get through that process. So what an LIT does, though, we, we are the only professionals in Canada who can actually reduce or eliminate debt or negotiate agreements that reduce or eliminate debt. The methods that we usually use, um, either consumer proposals, proposals for businesses, or if we need to, a bankruptcy, but they're not, bankruptcies are not the majority of what we do. And we help both people, companies, partnerships, really any entity in Canada. Our debtfreenorth.com, so our business, we're also known as C. Bueller and Associates, that's our professional name. And we are mostly focused on helping individuals and small businesses. So your local mom and pop corner store, the local hairdresser, that kind of thing. And then the people that, of course, are impacted by that if they're in financial trouble. When people come and meet with us, they are often faced with one of the most difficult choices. They're in serious debt problems. They don't know what to do. They're scared of everything under the sun, scared of losing houses, scared of getting garnished, all those things. And really, our job is to give them the information they need to make good informed decisions. So 
We talk about consolidation loans. We educate them on how that product works. We talk about changing and tweaking budgeting. So we've actually got a a certified financial counselor on staff who walks through budgets with folks. And then if we need to, we can talk about consumer proposals and bankruptcies if it's something that just can't be fixed with budgeting tweaks. So, yeah. You know, I'm thinking about... Because, of course, you know, one's brain always goes to, it's all about me. (laughs) And for me right now, I'm thinking about how embarrassed I think I would be. Because I'm already embarrassed and I don't have a bankruptcy situation on my hands. But at the same time, I'm just imagining having to divulge to someone all of that financial information. And there's so much emotion tied to if we feel like we've made maybe bad decisions or yeah, like I imagine it's a very, like in addition to the financial knowledge that is and the legal knowledge that's required, you're really dealing with people through a really delicate topic for them. Absolutely. I kind of imagine if you're you're at the end of your existence here, however long that may be, and you're looking back and you kind of list off the 10 big things in your life, there'll be a lot of people for whom, you know, sitting in my office is makes that list, right? There's marriages, divorces, children, and bankruptcies. And you're right. We kind of have a running joke in-house here that we're part accountant, part lawyer, part marriage counselor, and <laughs> and everything in between. And there's a lot of emotions that go with financial trouble. There's a lot of stigma for sure. And as you you said, em- embarrassment. And one of the things we're trying to do by talking about this is really to, I won't say get rid of that per se. I don't know that we'll ever get rid of it, but to educate people that no judgment here, we are here about finding options for you. And that's a good place to come at it from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about how you got into this field and sort of more early days in your career. Was it your plan to go down this route or were you thinking, I'll get an accounting designation because that'll get me a good job? And then likewise, I didn't realize how male dominated this field is. So I know you're going to talk a little bit about that, but like, did you know that? And if you did, what did that mean you expected or did it meet your expectations? Was it different? Just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So My mom tells the story that one day I came home from college and I was all lit up because I was in the law course and I loved the law course. And there was this tiny little paragraph, I'm holding my finger and thumb about an inch and a half apart, tiny paragraph that said, talked about insolvency. It said, people in financial trouble can do bankruptcies and proposals. And in Canada, licensed insolvency trustees do those. And I was like, that sounds awesome. And I have no idea to this day really what was awesome about that, but it was. But I put it on the shelf for four or five years. One of the uh, kind of other running jokes around here is that uh, after 11 years of school, the reason that I went into accounting was because I was only going to take two years of school. (laughs) I planned to go to our local community college and that was it. That was the end of the plan. Get a job, you know, move on with life. So after the two years of college, which turned into university, which turned into accounting, I was lucky enough to have dinner with two licensed insolvency trustees who are to this day very good friends of mine and they inspired me and what interested me was not the numbers or the law per se it was exactly what you just talked about the emotion people mm-hmm. helping people through difficult times and it's interesting because when you listen to a room full of trustees tell the same story almost every one of us corporate or personal that's what drew us in was the people you know helping whether it's the company restructure and save jobs or people move through and save a house So that's what brought me into it. Like I said, I was just lucky enough to be able to connect with these two and they brought me on. So I started in 2004 and I started the trustee training program and did not realize quite 
as polarized as it was. So my initial exposure to the industry was mostly in Manitoba. So we have an annual conference and all the trustees from Manitoba would show up. It's a very small room of people. There was about 20 people. And if I remember correctly, and I I might be out by one, but I think there was three women. There was myself, my boss, who was one of the female pioneers in the industry and specifically in Manitoba, as well as someone else who's now a good friend of ours, who's with the national accounting firm as a trustee. And so there was three of us and probably 20 people when the oldest statistics I could find was from 1991. So back in 1991, there was across the country, 7% of trustees were female, which of course makes 93% of them back in the day male. It's moving. That needle is moving right now. It's about 30% women split and I can say, though, and I'm excited about this, the last graduating class of trustees was 52% female. So that's kind of neat Neat to see that progression even over my yeah, semi-short career. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is good to see. And we're seeing that in a lot of different fields in education. We're seeing that in education, women are actually outrank pacing men in many fields in terms of their entry into previously male-dominated programs and graduating stats as well. That's that's encouraging, isn't it? That's good. It is encouraging. And then... And then I go to, okay, but what about the work experience in the workplace? Because this is an area that I'm deeply committed, passionate about, because, you know, I really want workplaces to be places where everybody can thrive. And you know, what I love about your story is, well, one of the things I love about it is when you said you got lit up at this idea of, which, you know, for someone like me who is scared of numbers, quite frankly. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) I see that lot. (laughs) It makes me chuckle a little bit, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I believe, and, and maybe this is me being a little bit Pollyanna about things, but I believe that everybody has something like that. And that there is so much diversity out there in the type of work that people feel drawn to, they feel a passion for, they feel a deep interest or curiosity for. And I love fueling that. I mean, one of the things I love about the work I do is I love fueling that and empowering it and helping people to then, because there's a lot of things that can get in the way Mm -hmm. of that path both internally in our own belief system and in our own mindset and in the external world, right? So I love that that you had that at such an early age, you know? <laughs> now, you mentioned that you worked for a woman early days in your career. And I think the words you just used were, she was a trailblazer or something. In- Pioneering, maybe? is that That's a, something I often attribute to her. And, and she remains a very good friend of mine. I'm very blessed to have friends like that, long-term friends who really understand. So she also owned a boutique accounting firm or a trustee firm. So what did it mean to you to have that connection and relationship? But like, what do you think that meant for you in your career? Oh, she's going to love this. <laughs> she was an extremely strong role model for all sorts of things. She had two children. I have three. She was married. So am I. She ran her own professional firm, which is exactly what I'm striving to do. She had male and female employees. She was just so many different pieces for me as a, you know, as a new professional. The other piece of it that I find interesting, I came from a rural background. I grew up on a farm. My first job was milking cows for my uncle. And, you know, it, it gives me great roots and I'm, I'm glad to be home. This, our office is based in Brandon, which is where home is to me. But she gave me my first 
piece of the big city. And I thought it was very interesting that she negotiated her world as a feminist. And, and that word has all sorts of implications. I definitely mean it in a very positive way. I can let the male open the door for me, but I'll address the judge myself, right? Like it was a dichotomy that I had never seen growing up remotely or rurally. My mom was in healthcare, which is which is great, but it's a very different type of experience for sure. So I watched her do all those things. And again, very blessed to have had that experience. Yeah, I think it's important to really recognize those women who were pioneers because there's so much space that women are breaking into that is still really new. And then there's so many firsts still to happen and still to come. So I think it's just so valuable to have those people as mentors and as role models. Okay, so back to early days. So anything else about those early day experiences? I think when I first joined kind of the big firms, I was very encouraged. I and perhaps I think you used the word Pollyanna. I think I think that applies to me sometimes too. I thought, great, this is a profession where women are treated the same as men. Like things like trustees are paid on a tariff. It does not matter what your gender or identity is. We're all paid the same way. So there's some equality built into the system. But as I quickly found out, you know, there's a few hashtag me too type moments. And I realized like, oh my word, are we in the dark ages here? It was almost scary to watch and to realize what types of things would advance my career that would absolutely you know, not align with my vision and my personal goals and values. So as much as I think I went in thinking, oh, this is great, you know, there's lots of women pioneers and there are, there's definitely still issues within in the system. I had a couple experiences kind of come to mind. I was on a video call with a, a male lawyer and, and the words he used to describe me were vexatious and vindictive. And let me back up. Trustees aren't always well-liked. We're a little like a referee where we have to make sure that each side is playing by the rules. And, you know, when I'm playing sports, I'm the first one to not like to hear the whistle blow, right? When I'm trying to move towards the goal line or shoot the basket, whatever. The whistle blows and I'm like, as much as everybody else. However, when I was on the video call, I was sitting with a junior, you know, early 20-somethings male. He was absolutely mortified. I could see in the video his face and my face. And I was still stone-faced. I was kind of expecting it. But his eyes just got so huge. He was mortified that I'd been called that, especially when I was doing my job, literally. So even worse, that same individual then used those descriptors, those adjectives in his submission to court. And I think, yeah, so it's on the record. And I think those words are a little more telling of where he's at on the career spectrum as opposed to where I'm at. Part of it, you have to let that roll off and part of it, you address it when it needs to be. And I did. So I think it's interesting because that same file, which, you know, we continue, uh, these files aren't quick things. I've now assigned to one of our mail, and you'll hear more about my team shortly, but currently I have one of the mails in-house here running with that one. No disparaging adjectives have been used. (laughs) And he and I are somewhat known for being notoriously similar as far as, you know, maybe a little blunt, maybe a little this, maybe a little that. It's funny how he gets away with it. And I most definitely would not. So we go with it. (laughs) Right. So how about, you know, moving forward to more present day? Now you're a founder, you run a business. What's that been like? That has been challenging. As I was growing up, my grandfather was the serial entrepreneur. He had business after business as I was growing up. And to me, that 
it kind of had a bad connotation. Not that he ever did poorly in business, but to me, my dad's a mechanic and my mom was a nurse. So they had got their jobs at 20 years old and they stayed in it till they retired. So, you know, I grew up with that. So thinking one could jump from job to job and start businesses willy nilly, that was not professional to me. So I'm starting to learn that entrepreneur does include the word professional. So I may have to rebrand myself as such. I'm learning more that entrepreneur applies because we're doing things like networking. We're doing things like trying to figure out social media. I mean, I did not have Instagram until I started the business. <laughs> my kids still tease me about that. Crossing my fingers on the Google algorithms, hoping that, you know, we've got it figured out and it doesn't change tomorrow. Picking office furniture, like literally we we're talking about that this morning all the way down to actually, you know, working on client files, reconciling bank accounts, filing affidavits, those kinds of things. And then advocating for my industry, not only as a woman, but as a professional. So I'm learning to accept that brand, that entrepreneur does encompass all that other stuff. So that's been a challenge. And I don't think I was cognizant of this. So being in financial industry, I have found it's much more difficult for women to finance a business, whether that's a, I'm selling t-shirts or I'm an accountant or whatever. I did not realize that was a bias in the system until it was my turn. And there is a bias in the system. There are, in fact, to address the bias, there are special programs that they've designed. And I, I am now more aware of them. Maybe they've always existed, but you go to any of the big four or big five banks and you say, listen, I'm a female entrepreneur. They generally have a program for that. And even if you don't quite fit the box, because trustees are notorious for never fitting the box, they are able to um, tweak their programs to understand. So I find that interesting. And I, I wish I had more stats on kind of when that became the popular in thing. Just in this last 10 days, two weeks, we've had two male professionals that I can think of kind of take note of our business and go, oh, you know, you're not just the little place on the corner. So we actually practice across the three prairie provinces in Canada, which is the bulk of the center of Canada, as well as the three northern territories. So we cover a lot of geography and we help a lot of people remotely. And so it's neat when a professional that would have never looked at us a year and a half ago takes note and actually knocks on our door. <laughs> so that's been our firm's a little different. So our firm is me, a professional female and three males, one of which is my husband. They've all had lengthy careers before coming here. And they're probably going to snicker when they hear that and think I just called them old, which I may have. <laughs> <laughs> Two of them are with financial institutions, credit unions, banks, that kind of thing, lending. And so they understand the other side of what we do. And then my husband's background was in IT and accounting. And so he generally keeps me going where I need to be. <laughs> and he makes my computer work, which makes me happy generally. As well, he's we have transitioned in our in our relationship to he's doing a lot of the things at home. So we together have three children and they range from 10 to almost 19. That's a challenge. <laughs> so we've we've had to juggle that and uh, what we negotiated as teens because we we were married in in high just after high school. What we negotiated then is not what it looks like now and I, I appreciate that we're on the same page about that. Mm -hmm. It does really take a certain approach to parenting, partnering with your spouse, your partner, well, any career. Oh yeah, for sure. If two people in a household raising children or having other care responsibilities, which many people do, are going to be successful and not like, you know, just work to live, but also maybe have some joy in your life, you know? <laughs> Exactly. And build memories for your kids and accomplish the common goals, right? Like that's what it's about. 
Mm -hmm. It does take a real renegotiating along the way and a real thinking about how, as I think as a couple, you want to approach that. I have two sons. So, you know, for me too, similar to you, this is something that I've had to, I'm really cognizant of. And because I have boys in particular, it's even more important to me how we negotiate. For example, things that have to be done in the house, all of that, you know, domestic and caregiving work and, and the mental load of that. You know, it's important to me that they understand how and why in my household, it's mom and dad, make those decisions. Because, you know, being the mom isn't the default person to just do everything. And there's so much that I think most of us just take for granted because we just do, right? It's just, that's just life. We have these biases that we're just, that are just there from the way we're raised and, and everything around us. I think that's really interesting. And talking about accepting help. So we are supported by an awesome community. People refer to them as, you know, their village. I've got a great village. Lucky enough to live close to both my mom and my mother-in-law who who help us out in lots of ways. Communities around female founders, female entrepreneurs, they do best to recognize that that world is never the same two days in a row. My mother-in-law, so we live in close proximity and so she'll see me come home at five o'clock one night and 10 o'clock the other night, you know, and never questions, just supports, just assumes, you know, what you guys have been busy at work. How can I help you? You know, I need to pack a lunch for a kid tomorrow. I've got that for you. I appreciate that they don't take those things or if I let something fall off my radar, I forgot to bring the casserole. I forgot to do this. It's not personal. And they know that they, they know that. So been amazing. And through COVID, we've had a lot of extra support. And I think that's very important for female founders and where they don't have support. If you don't have a village, because I recognize not everyone has that support, you have to make it for yourself, whether that's maybe allowing yourself some leeway. You know, it doesn't have to be a gourmet meal every night. (laughs) Something in a box from a takeout is okay. Or, you know, the perfectly clean house. uh, That's always the stereotype is, you know, I can clean house and do all the things. Well, Sanitary is one thing, perfectly clean is another. So, you know, having adjusting expectations or employing people to help you if that, if you have the means and you can consider doing that for yourself, you know, self care. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what would you recommend for a woman who's entering your field? I mean, we could talk about men too, because it's not obviously the men's behavior and mindset is critically important to making change. But let's start with women. Given all your experiences, both in the industry that you're in and also now as an entrepreneur and business owner, what advice would you have for women? Think about this one for a minute. I have kind of an answer that's good for both, but I think women founders just in general, maybe not trustees, but maybe those who are going into financial industries, don't make assumptions. I know I've done that in my career and they always say, you know, I won't say it, but (laughs) when you assume what that means, Mm -hmm. don't make assumptions. Don't assume I can't this or they won't that or those type of things. Don't assume, just ask, say, hey, how about that? You know, do you think we could make this happen? Your practice or your career may not end up looking like you thought, but if you didn't ask, you'll never know. Heck, it might be better than you imagined, right? I definitely never thought I'd be running a business where if I decide I'm done for the day and my kid needs me more than I need to be here, I'm out, right? That's that's a pretty big privilege that 
we've asked a lot of questions to get here. So I would say that for the women is don't assume. For the both, I actually, I thought of a neat thing. I ride horses. I think we talked about that briefly before. So I'm lucky enough. I have three of them in my backyard and uh, we have a few acres that that they keep mowed for us. I have one particular horse. He's a thoroughbred, which means he's a little more high strung than the others. And he hates to stand still. So if you try to make him stand still, he'll run sideways or he'll buck or he'll, he'll do whatever he can to just not stand still. So that same horse, if you direct his movement, so you let him move, but you direct it, you tell him to walk this way in a line, or go in a circle or trot down that wall. He's happy as a puppy dog. And he's a beautiful horse to ride. Absolutely phenomenal. So he's taught me that letting him move brings out his best and ultimately mine. You know, he's taught me to be a better rider. I've had to keep my nerves calm when he's going down the wall faster than I wanted. <laughs> I've progressed to doing things with him that I never thought I'd do. I took riding lessons last winter with my daughter. I was on this horse and she was on our, our other one, the old faithful guy. I thought that was really, as far as a life lesson, keep moving and embrace change. I would say to any young professionals, embrace change and don't fight it. Currently in our industry, we're trying to figure out what the post-COVID world's going to look like. So during COVID, we've been able to meet with people by video. And uh, the regulators who assign the rules are trying to decide, do we have to go back to sitting across the table from them? Do we continue with only virtual or, of course, is a hybrid option acceptable? And there's those in our industry that said, well, I wouldn't be a trustee if I knew I was only ever going to sit in front of a computer screen. And I understand that. I get it. But I've actually enjoyed meeting with clients virtually. And for me, it's actually solved an issue that I couldn't have solved myself. So I mentioned hashtag me too before. And in in that world where we're concerned about being alone with people in closed rooms for everyone's sake, video meetings have offered all of us a level of protection and safety. And and there's nothing that would ever hurt me more than allegations either made by my staff or my staff being hurt by a client. So just it solved a problem for me. So before we go, no, we don't want to change. That's that's bad. Think about the horse and, and just sit and let him go his own speed for a little bit. So that's kind of what I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah. There's a lot of resistance, I think, in businesses, this desire still, I'm hearing it, to sort of dictate what back to work will look like. And I think that there does need to be a loosening of that grip because there's a lot of resistance to it. It'll be interesting to see what, what our regulators come up with. They have been very receptive to our feedback. And that point, among others, was one of the points that we put forward. So, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The gears a little bit to talk about what you've noticed. We did an episode earlier with Christine Beasy. She's lovely. Yeah, fantastic, <laughs> wonderful, brilliant woman, founder of Untangle Money. Her and I talked about women and finances and, you know, the wealth gap, the pink tax, you know, she opened my eyes to all kinds of interesting information that I didn't know the extent of. And you've got similar experiences because you're also talking to men and women about their finances. And you've noticed some differences in the way that men and women manage their finances and certainly the way they approach debt. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. But before I go there, I want to say that I listen to podcasts lots in the car and my 15 year old or I guess she's 15 now, was riding along with me. We'd go grocery shopping once a week and it's kind of a mom and her outing. And and she was listening to that particular episode. And as you were talking through pink tax and you know what that means and what it is and how prevalent it is, she actually paused the podcast because she doesn't normally listen to them. She paused it. She looked at me with this look on her face and she said, is that a thing? I said, 
Yeah, that's what they're talking about. So we finished listening to the podcast and the conversations we've had since then and with the younger one too. So I do have two daughters and they've both picked up on that. But back to your question about differences in debt and difference in managing money, probably the biggest thing I've seen lately, and this comes even just from the last 10 days, this is this was an observation that my husband made. He commented that older women and, and put whatever number you want on older, uh, I think it moves farther as I get older. Of course. <laughs> they never anticipated having having to make some of these money decisions or to comprehend things like investments, lifts, liras, RRSPs. These were decisions that really they never thought would be in their wheelhouse. So we're seeing the fallout of that. In fact, just yesterday, I took a call from a senior who was reaching out, looking for some resources, some budgeting resources and such for a friend of hers, because the friend is completely lost, does not know how to put together a family budget. And the friend is over 70. I mean, it's something that that we see The other thing that I see, and now I do acknowledge that my experience might be slightly skewed in this, but when I pick up the phone, if the person on the other end of the phone is calling me because of a, I'm going to say marital situation, whether that's male, female, whether that's whatever your household looks like, when they're calling me about a household's financial situation, typically the female that's on the phone. And so there's a lot of emotional weight to debt and to figuring it out, right? She may or may not be the primary breadwinner. But somehow it falls to, I'm going to say the mom, the the wife, the whatever, to solve that problem. And I am more cognizant of it as we go now. I, again, I do admit my statistics on that may be skewed. I am a female trustee. I'm very clearly on our website, a female trustee. And therefore, if they feel that might be a connection point is, you know, I'd rather call a female than a male. That does happen in our industry. But it's a lot of emotional weight for some. So they often call, they gather all the facts, you know, here's what the trustee said our options are. They'll take that information back, relay it to the spouse and a decision is made, whatever that may be. So I thought that was interesting. We're also seeing over time, let's say from 2012 forward to 2020, the division between males and females who have to file insolvency, whether that's a proposal or a bankruptcy, it used to be much more skewed to males. And that is now coming very, very close to a 50-50 split. I think it was 48%, 52%, something like that in about 2018. So we're seeing an equality there, but I'm not sure it's one that we wanted. <laughs> not sure it's one anybody wants, regardless of gender. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, there's been some statistics and and these aren't mine. I, I acknowledge that there's someone else in our industry who kind of compiles statistics that women file an insolvency on less debt than males. And so the question was raised, why would that be? So for example, uh, statistics show women file an insolvency when their debt totals roughly 43,000 versus males totals of debt, which is approximately 52,000. So what's the difference for the $9,000 differential. I think, and I think the founders of the study think that women are more likely to have other risk factors, things like being a single parent, being divorced or separated or widowed, being a low-income senior. So just statistically, women fall into those buckets more often and therefore that's why their filing rates are higher. I think that's interesting. Also, that would mean that their debt takes up a larger portion of their after-tax income. So again, we're talking that wealth gap, debt absolutely does not do pretty things to the wealth gap. I'll just say that. Yeah. So our experience, uh, women facing debt troubles, especially after a separation or divorce, if they weren't on utility accounts. So like you've got a, I don't know, 40-year-old, 50-year-old woman who's never had a power account in her name. 
phones up the local utility provider and they say like, you're not here. I'm sorry, we need a security deposit from you to open your account. That just seems counterintuitive, especially if the household income for the previous 20 years had been going to pay that. It's just because it was under, and I'll be very stereotypical under his name, it didn't build her credit history and therefore these providers don't recognize her. So there's that as an issue. We see women caregivers, not not only for children. I mean, I'm in the sandwich generation, so we care for parents. We care for spouses who have illness and injuries and whatever it may be, as well as for children. And again, that contributes to that wealth gap that we talked about, which again, it's only exaggerated when you layer in debt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's kind of what our experience has been. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what words of advice do you have for women with regard to finances, money, and perhaps debt as well? Sure. I can think of three main ones. The first one, and I I encourage males and females, but we're talking about women today, is to educate yourself. Know that there are books, webinars, podcasts, such as this one, such as Christine's, that are available for free. Like if you're in financial trouble, you don't need to be paying for these things. There's lots of free resources out there that are good resources. You can consider a financial mentor as well. So so educate yourself through what they've done, good or bad. Maybe they made some poor choices and they'll tell you about them. Maybe they've made some good choices and they'll share that with you. So that's really the first one I'd say is is education. The second one is being assertive. If you don't think your partner is making a wise financial decision, you have to have a mechanism to bring that up for discussion. And I think we had talked previously that we don't always have the best financial modeling as we're growing up. Uh, You know, even as parents, we try to do the best we can, but it's just not something that you always talk about. So if that's the case where you have a situation and you're not comfortable or you don't know how to bring it up, look for a counselor. Consider using your employee assistance plan if you have benefits. Connect with a counselor, even a a not-for-profit. Have money talks where there's no fighting, no shaming, and no blaming. That's your goals, right? It's just to solve the problem. And then the last one is watching the life stages and understand that each time you change stages or you bounce back and forth between them, that has a financial impact. So the the example I can think of, it breaks my heart when people say, as part of every file, we have to ask the reasons for your financial difficulty. And uh, of course, we've seen everything under the sun. But the one that gets me is when people say having children or taking parental leave, taking maternity leave. I hate to put that on you know, documents. I would never want the children to see that. I would never want the children to feel the burden that, hey, mom and dad had to file bankruptcy because of me. So I have found having children to be an amazing experience and everyone has different experiences if they're able to do so. And so often society tells us as women that, you know, we can have it all. We can have our children. We can have our family. We can have our career. But in my experience, it's not the case. You can have all the things. You just can't have them at the same time. And so If taking some time out of a career to be home with children, whether that's for two months or 12 months or five years or whatever, let that choice impact your future. Let it adjust what your future looks like. Don't try and fill that hole or differential with credit. Don't finance the life that you would have had if you chose to be at work. Yeah, it just brings me to tears when thinking that that might be somebody's reason for being in financial trouble is uh, choosing to have a family. I've often joked, and now I'm feeling maybe this isn't so appropriate, but there have been times where I've I've joked with my husband. It's like, you know, it's like the kids don't understand that they're the reason we're poor. <laughs> we, My husband and I do say, yeah, well, you're the reason we can't have nice things yet. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, the life we would have lived if we had free daycare. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. 
but as much as we joke about it and, and it is it is funny and I think the point is well taken that we've made a choice we're having this family let it impact your future let them have a little bit of craft dinner and some hand-me-down clothes because it didn't kill anybody in our generation so <laughs> exactly yeah they can wear hand-me-down clothes but just to make sure there's a pocket for their iPhone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, interesting. Anything else you wanted to say about that? No, I think that would be my advice to, you know, women who are embarking either on managing finances for the first time, you know, maybe they're young or maybe they recently separated or, or in a different life situation. And then males as well as to support, obviously, the women in your world. I want to reinforce something you said a little earlier, and you were talking about it more in terms of your approach with potential clients about no judgment. And I think it's so important to that we have no judgment of ourselves. And that doesn't mean inaction. That doesn't mean, you know, not being fully awake and aware of the situation that we are in, the reality of what, you know, our circumstances facing that head on. But without judgment, I think is such a critically important thing. And I'll speak to this from my own experience and I'll, and with regard to money specifically, I probably am very stereotypically female in some of this regard. I have other strengths, but you know, certainly, you know, I've mentioned before the numbers in general is not one of them. And so my husband, I certainly fell into a pattern of, you know, certain jobs, how they were divvied up. And it's not like I was, not doing my fair share, but I wasn't, I didn't have my eyes on the finances as much. Right. But I had other important jobs that I was doing. So I don't want to take on any guilt or shame about that, you know? No, exactly. And that's the thing, right? It's like, there's all of this in often so seemingly invisible work that women do. Tons of it. You know, like just, just the parenting, like there's so much that is difficult to quantify. Absolutely. What you're talking about is we do see that in our files. So if somebody chooses to file a bankruptcy, one of the tasks that they must do in order for the file to close is to provide us with a statement every month that shows money in and money out. Just put it real simple. I don't like to call it a budget because nobody likes to budget. It's a record of what happened. And so very often we have the discussion with the couple. So logistically, how is this going to happen, especially when they have young children in the home or if they're working opposite shifts, days and nights, he works remotely, she's at home with kids. Like, tell me how this is really going to happen. And they sit there and they look at each other with a stunned look like, well, he thought she was going to do it. And she's like, I don't know how. And she knows she's going to. And this is, again, so stereotypical. So we just have that conversation right up front. So one of the suggestions that I make is, again, not encouraging them to incur debt or spend money. The two of them, okay, who's going to physically do it? Okay, well, let's say that she sticks up her hand. All right, what do you need so that you have an hour every month to get this thing done? Because if it doesn't get done, your bankruptcy is not going to close. And very often it's, I need an extra hour at the end of a week and I don't know where I'm going to get that. And again, being stereotypical, but we turn to the mail and say, you know what? There's a park down the street from your house. So let's just say the last Saturday of every month, you commit from 6 p.m. till 7 p.m. to take your children to that park. If it's pouring rain, they will wear rain jackets. Like, <laughs> you, you kind of really have to carve it out. This is the marriage counselor piece, but it worked. And there they've had their first non-confrontational, non-judgmental, 
no blaming, no shaming, no yelling, money conversation. And so we, we like to model that for them. Yeah. And what I found as I was educating myself a bit more about this, I had to insert myself and say, okay, I want to sit with you. Let's sit together as we do these things because I need to learn how to do them. And it's not intuitive for me. Right. And my husband's, I mean, my husband is the nicest person in the whole world, right? So I'm, not, I'm really not being me. It's not natural for him to like, he always skips steps and makes assumptions. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, back this up. Talk to me like I'm in grade five, you know, like I need the remedial class in this, right? But that's on me too, to say, okay, but I'm going to insert myself and I'm going to sit, we're going to do these things together. And then I'm going to take on more and I'm going to learn it because I am secretly worried that one day he's going to croak and I'm going to be stuck with all this stuff and I'm not going to know what I'm doing. And I'm going to be one of those 70 year old women you talked about going, help. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, that's a conversation we have with our, I'm going to say seniors, but really it's honestly everybody my age and up. We say, you know, if you're, if you don't have little kids running around at your feet, then make your wife a tea, make your husband a coffee and sit together and do these things, right? I don't care if you have to like allocate five bucks in your budget to go do it at Timmy's, but you've got to get this stuff done and you're going to do it together, right? To have that conversation. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I equate that with I am not mechanically inclined. Everyone around me is my staff, my husband, my dad, everybody watching me trying to like change oil or change a tire. It gets painful, but I get it done <laughs> eventually. Right. And it's, you know, one day when you're on the side of the road and none of those people are around, it'll be, you know, good that you've had the practice, even though it might right. take you a little longer. So this is Deb and Lisa back. Lisa, we were talking about this episode and you were saying how you found yourself getting really agitated at, at some things. And so I thought we would start with what was triggering you as you listen to this. We talked about this from a number of different angles, right? Because we've talked about women and the wealth gap before, which is a really serious, obviously a concerning issue. In terms of our conversation with Krista, we heard a lot about her career, but also what she's noticing about her work as she works with women. And so what was it that really struck you? Yeah, well, before I go there, and I will go there quite quickly, I just want to thank you for engaging with Crystal in this important ongoing conversation that you and I have with each other and with our guests about opportunities for all of us to thrive in the workplace, to use our skills and passion. And in this case, Crystal, when she talked about her interest to work in insolvency, which I, you know, for me would never be a top of mind similar to you. I, you know, I know how to pay my bills, but I, uh, being involved in complex structures around uh, money and we've, you've interviewed other guests in traditionally male dominated fields. I want to say, first of all, to her uh, that I commend her and every woman who or a person from an underrepresented identity who's forging the way for the rest of us. And you often talk about, you know, many firsts are yet to come. And I consider Crystal to be in the category of women who are creating firsts for the rest of us. So I'm going to start there. To answer your question about my reactivity, my initial sentiment, I guess, was kind of anger and frustration. And here's where I'm coming from on this. 
it just seems so obvious to me that in addition to all the domestic labor that women do, the childcare, the emotional labor, like there's already a heavy burden on many women in our society around those pieces. And the stats bear me out. I'm not making anything up here. To then go out into the world and to pick a profession that you're passionate about and that you really want to make a difference and you just want to do great work to encounter the kinds of things that Crystal encountered. The, the one example she gave about the lawyer who called her vexatious and vindictive, who would never use that language with a male. There are so many other things that women face from comments about their bodies uh, in the workplace, the appropriateness of their clothes or not, you know, people feeling it's appropriate if someone has gained weight to ask them if they're pregnant, like that's happened to me. And I can assure listeners that I have not uh, had any children. So being touched inappropriately. You know, there's just so much. There's just so much that women experience. And that was that, please already, can this not, can I make it go away? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, where I started. But, you know, the topics that you and it was so wide ranging what the two of you covered. I felt I had something to say about everything, but I know we're going to narrow this down to a couple of key points. So what about you? What really stands out for you in this? So first of all, you know, I just want to acknowledge what you're saying because we're emotional beings, right? That's a human experience. And so there might be a wide range of emotions that could come with, with being a woman in the world of work today or being someone from a marginalized group. So anger, frustration, apathy, sadness, I've experienced the whole range. <laughs> and because you and I are in the thick of this work, we're exposed to it a lot more. We're seeing, we're, you know, we're reading it, we're aware, we're talking to people. And so I think that's a really normal reaction. And I think it's then well, what is that telling us, right? Because, you know, I see now emotions as data information. And then we want to think about, okay, processing that in a way that's going to be healthy for us so that we don't, first of all, get stuck in it and take it on too much. Because, you know, the other thing I always try to say, especially in the past few years, has been sort of become my motto is that we can't let it rob us of joy and of, you know, moving forward in a meaningful way that we feel like, okay, this is this is what's happening. We're awake, we're aware, but now we're going to figure out how we want to respond. The thing that that I think I most want to share is I was really touched by the story that Crystal shared about how she came to learn about what bankruptcy and insolvency work was was all about and and how it sort of had come up as almost a footnote in in a textbook or something and it sparked something with her it sparked this curiosity and interest and she even went home and said oh this is what I want to do and i thought that was so fascinating i'm i'm always so interested in what sparks people, what ignites that sort of interest, and then where do they go with that? And it's interesting how, and I've seen this happen many, many times, where maybe a person deviates a little bit from that for a while. And, and that's all part of the learning that then propels us forward, but then maybe comes back to it in some way. And so in the work that I do, first of all, I feel very privileged to hear the stories of people's careers. And I love hearing about those spark moments. And I think what I want from an individual point of view is that that, again, just like we said, anger or an emotional reaction is information and data, those sparks, those feelings, those moments, that's important data to pay attention to. And so really uncovering and following, well, what does that mean and what could that lead to and, and letting that be some momentum to drive you forward, I think is really important. And then the other aspect of that is that 
I think for organizations and leaders, you know, you want people working for your organization that are, that have those sparks, that have those, you know, those interests, those drivers. And so I think hiring people, you know, based on their talent, their potential, their areas of curiosity and interest is so important. I'm almost thinking that we need to go back to a more old fashioned model in a way. This is the only time you'll hear me say go back to something old fashioned (laughs) of, you know, hiring people based on those things and training them, developing them and hiring people also a values match is also really important. I don't, I could talk at length about that as well. But that's what was really important to me. And and I know Crystal was being quite conservative in the stories that she shared, because I do know that she had other stories that she could have shared about hashtag me twos and so forth. So, you know, I think that was what we heard was just a small snippet of, of some of the things that she's encountered. And we don't want those kinds of things to get in the way of people bringing their talent into the workplace. That's the thing that gets my goat. Yeah. And, you know, I'm grateful for many people who are putting this into the spotlight. So for listeners who weren't aware of this, the Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail, ran a series called The Power Gaps, the start of 2021. The articles are all accessible. They've created something called the Women's Collective. And at first, I, again, was disheartened and discouraged when I kept reading headlines about ageism and sexism. And this is not just women at high levels in their careers, executives or mid-career, but even at the lower paid roles that our society depends on, these incredibly discriminatory gaps in pay. And that's a problem. A couple of the things for the, pan, you know, talking about the pandemic, you know, childcare and domestic work typically fell to women in the home, children were, you know, at home having to manage schooling, women leaving uh, the employment sphere, talk of what they called a she-session, right, in a recession, but that was primarily because of women having to literally pay the price for what was happening during the pandemic in terms of the falling economic factors. Meanwhile, you know, the wealthy getting wealthier, and we know that most wealth is concentrated in name to many of the men on this planet. And also that women are often in precarious work where you don't know your hours. you often don't know what time your shift is going to start. You're having to manage your, your daycare, all of that. Just, you know, trying to make your day work, forget about even saving money. So when Crystal was talking about some of the stories of her clients who, you know, are people really trying to do the best for themselves, for their families, for their parents, and just everything that, you know, and I'm putting women in a big category that women face when, you know, we are trying to, you know, as, as you would say, not only just get up and get our days going, but find some joy in it. So I'm grateful for the conversation that you had with her. I, it was very enlightening for me. And you started off the conversation, interestingly, and, and I think this was an important point too, where when you talk about money, you're having money problems, that there's shame and fear and stigma. And I think part of taught women talking about money helps us vacate or, you know, or expunge some of those feelings because we are not alone. Many of us have been in situations in which we've had uh, difficulties in having enough money in our lives for the basics. So again, I was really eye-opened, if I can say that, in everything that you and Crystal talked about. I think the one other thing that you're reminding me of that was really interesting is about how, you know, when Crystal said it's often the if it's a couple, right? A male, female couple, it's the woman who makes the call, you know, so it reminded me and, and she didn't link this, but to me, it, it's linking in my brain anyways, that it's consistent with what we see in terms of men being less likely to ask for help about anything. You know, they're less likely to get 
medical help, mental health, anything, right? So, and that, again, I'm not making this up. It's well-documented in the stats. And it seems that this is also falling into that category of even though it may be common that men are more likely to be managing the household finances or have more control and line of sight to that, when it comes to the point where we need to ask for help or, you know, make that that decision, it's often falls to the woman to make the call because again, it's falling into that difficult, some of that more difficult emotional labor. And so part of women changing in our society, becoming more financially independent and having careers and participating in the economy, this has to go hand in hand with men also changing. We're asking women to change. Well, guess what? That leaves a vacuum, at least a void. So men are also having being stretched, you know, to learn some of the language of that more emotional language and to be able to sit in those moments and to be able to have difficult conversations that, you know, and I don't blame them. They weren't necessarily raised or taught to do that. We're all, you know, falling into systems that we're born into. And so, you know, we just have to work, we just have to find ways to work together around this and just be able to have the open dialogue and not get defensive. There's a lot of defensiveness around these types of conversations, I find. Yeah. And I would just add to that really important, right? People talking about real things and solving real issues, but to never lose fact, uh, lose, lose track of the fact that we are in systems that have been unjust to women. We are in systems that have been unjust to older people. We have been in systems that are unjust to marginalized communities, people of color, and that you know, for as many conversations as we have that are important to have in our primary relationships, we also need to look at the systems that are created around us in which we're not built for people who were essentially not white and male and able-bodied. And again, I'm heartened by the fact that these conversations are coming up broader in society uh, as, you know, I think I almost every conversation I have <laughs> these days is, and there's more work to do is, is something that uh, that somebody says. As disheartened as I am, I'm also hopeful because more and more voices are coming to the fore to change the way that we live, to change the way that we work, and to challenge some ideas that are just not serving anyone, men included. So we are moving incrementally, we're centimetering, maybe millimetering, sometimes there's some step back. But I do think that the arc of where we are going is advancing us, and we just need to keep pushing in the way that Crystal has forged her place in the world and the way that we support everyone to find their place doing work that they love. And we encourage people to use their voices and to share their stories. And if there's anyone out there listening who has a story to share or would like to get in touch with us in any way, please visit our websites, workrevolutionpodcast.com and get in touch with us and ask us questions about what's going on in the workplace too, because we love to tackle those. That's it for now. All right. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a review. And follow the Work Revolution podcast on Instagram for more great content and updates about our work. In addition to two full episodes a month, we have a monthly Ask Us Anything, where we answer your questions about leadership, career maneuvering, and whatever workplace challenges you're facing. Submit your questions to our website at workrevolutionpodcast.com where you'll find all our episodes as well as learn more about who we are. Thanks to Bernie at Blue Eye Music for our music theme and to the team at Poditize for production support. Until next time.